Hello, everyone. I want to talk about intellectual honesty in relation to religion. Intellectual honesty is an applied method of problem solving characterized by an unbiased, honest attitude, which can be demonstrated in a number of different ways. One's personal beliefs or politics do not interfere with the pursuit of truth. Um, Religion strongly disagrees with that. Relevant facts and information are not purposefully omitted even when such things may contradict one's hypothesis. Religion strongly disagrees with that. Facts are presented in an unbiased manner and not twisted to give misleading impressions or to support one view over another. Religion strongly disagrees with that. References or earlier work are acknowledged where possible and plagiarism is avoided. Religion strongly disagrees with that. Harvard ethicist Lewis M. Gwinnon describes the quote-unquote kernel of intellectual honesty to be a virtuous disposition to eschew deception when given an incentive for deception. Religion strongly disagrees with that. Intentionally committed fallacies in debates and reason are called intellectual dishonesty. Religion strongly agrees with intellectual dishonesty. It gets worse. Dinosaurs. For 160 million years, approximately 225 to 65 million years ago, the Earth was a dinosaur planet. There was no question who ruled at the top of the food chain. But Christianity suggests that God created Earth so he could have a place for, quote-unquote, his ultimate creation, human beings. If this is so, does it make any sense that he allowed the dinosaurs so much time, given that they had no significance in the eternal matters of his theology? The answer to the question is no. It makes no sense whatsoever. Modern humans have existed for at most 200,000 years or one out of 800th of the reign of the dinosaurs. The history of the dinosaurs on this planet is significant evidence that the Earth was not created for humans, that there was no God directing the script. Well, that's tough, Um, especially the last ending. Um, I... I wrestle with this because God has been my everything. The way my grandma and I constructed it together, her and myself when I was a child. So it's tough to um, arrive at any conclusion like... I I want to know a God, a benevolent one, who is directing the script, that there's a part of me, the child me, when I say the part of me, I'm talking about the child me, that loves the idea of an omnibenevolent God directing the script, because that's what I was taught, and I don't like the ideas of what I'm, of what I was taught to be wrong, because I hate to be duped. I grew up in a betrayal trauma culture that y'all know about when I was a child. And 
to attach that to religion, it really hurts. Don't get me wrong, I'm not afraid of hard truths. I'm not afraid of hard conversations. I'm not afraid of hard decisions. Even though all three are extremely discomforting, um, just, you know, because I'm such a bubbly person, um, it's just hard to, it, my child self finds it impossible to shake the omnibenevolent God imagery I was, I was encouraged to, to, to be acquainted with. So it, this is hard. These doubts are not easy. And I get these doubts out not to make anybody non-religious, not to make anybody religious, not to make anybody of faith or no faith or spirituality, no spirituality. That's not the goal. The goal is I am hungry for the truth. I am thirsty for the truth. Sometimes I feel dehydrated for the truth. Sometimes I feel starving for the truth. I just want the truth more than anything. And I doubt my way to the truth because I hope that I'm wrong when it comes to what I was shown in in terms of the science of religion um, conversation. I don't. I hope I'm wrong on that because the child me hopes I'm wrong on that because. It's comforting to have been taught something and for it to be true. And when you see science dismantling what saved my life as a kid, that's how I define my life being saved. Um, Even though in a lot of ways I wasn't saved when it came to organized crime, at least I had something to not totally hate myself. So I wrestle with these things every day because I heal every day. When you heal every day, you wrestle every day. And it's just, it's disappointing that I don't see overwhelming scientific cooperation about what I was taught. I'm not mad at science. I'm just like, why couldn't the Bible writers have written things that science could easily vouch for? It would it would make it so much easier for me to be more at peace with my grandma taught me, but that's not the case, and it hurts. Because what I don't get is why why are there so many interpretations of the Bible? Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. How come the writings and of the Bible, the writing styles of the Bible, how come it wasn't written so clearly and effectively and so masterfully that there isn't a bunch of interpretations flying everywhere. And it's like, I feel like it's very disturbing, even to me, 
that to write something and there's so much brain freezing and you know like a brain freeze when we read the bible that's heartbreaking for me because I gave my all to to God, to Christianity, to the church. I didn't make Christianity God. I didn't make the church God. I made God God. And I, I gave my all to the Bible. I didn't make the Bible God. Again, I made God God. So, it, it's a part of my healing journey. It's okay to doubt as long as you doubt your way to the truth. And to release and to speak your doubts is to is to keep you from making your doubts God. Um. So that was me off the top of my head just now. Um. Um. Let me get to this point. Galileo Galilei was an Australian astronomer who first popularized the concept of heliocentrism, that the sun is at the center of the solar system and about which the earth and the other planets revolve. In 1615, became a victim of the Inquisition authorities for proclaiming this concept, which they considered a, a, a heretical idea contrary to biblical scripture. He spent the remainder of his life under house arrest. This example is one, but but one of many where church authorities persecuted scientists who published the theories that later proved to be true. But this presents a logical problem. If the church authorities, including the Pope, the very head of the universal Christian church at the time, were truly being guided and enlightened by an all-powerful, all-knowing God, why would they not have understood the veracity of the claim? Why would God have allowed them to embarrass and discredit his church by sticking to an old idea, archaic even, that was predestined to be completely and universally abandoned. Another example is the topic of evolution. There remains an ongoing but diminishing resistance to this well-proven theory that religious leaders today continue to deny. Like heliocentrism, evolution will be universally accepted within several decades will once again shine a light on the failure of the Christian church to perceive reality in the face of their own biases. Such is not the earmark of a movement that is connected to a supernatural deity, but rather to a man-made dogma developed by unscientific minds. See, see, I do have what is called righteous indignation towards the church because religion glamorizes rigidity to its own extreme detriments. That's my only comment on that one. Now, this part, um, I think I'm going to read at least two more. Um, him, um, actually three more. Human body design flaws. Many Christians claim that God designed the human body either by one-step creation process or by way of guided evolution. Either way, this hypothesis can be tested by examining the human body construction to see if it has the features of a perfect design or does not. It hurts to, to say these things. It really hurts. 
I take no victory laps over any of these things. That's how strongly attached I, you know, being a child. And it's just like, in order to liberate myself, I have to engage in what I call to heal the hurts. It's going to feel like hurtful healing. The following design flaws are present. Most unfortunate design flaws in the human body. IO9.com. Um, dual function of the pharynx, ingestion of food and air through the same opening has resulted in millions of deaths. An ability to synthesize vitamin C and other vitamins leading to many cases of malnourishment and depressed immune function. Poor routing of the male urinary tract through the prostate gland resulting in disturbed urinary function. Proximity of genitals to the rectum resulting in frequent infection. Multifunctional genitals resulting in urinary tract infections and more. Too narrow birth canal resulting in failed deliveries, death in childbirth, frequent need for C-sections, strained lower backs, stacked vertebrae in a vertical position versus being more horizontal in most vertebrates results in ubiquitous lower back pain. Overloaded knees and hips designed to carry one and a half of our weight but being Bipedal now carry all the weight, resulting in frequent injury. Overly complicated human foot comprising 26 bones prone to plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, shin splints, and broken ankles. Inefficient sinuses, some of which drain upwards against gravity, resulting in frequent infection. Blind spot and eyes caused by poor routing of the optic nerve. Single set of adult teeth with teeth too vulnerable to decay and infection. In addition to the design flaws, there are many vestigial organs in the body that no longer serve a function. If God designed the human body, it is unlikely that he would not have removed those organs that have a function in lower animals but no function in humans. These include the appendix, the Cossacks, wisdom teeth, the sinuses, erector, pili, tonsils, and male nipples, among others. The fact that the human body does not represent a product designed by an outside intelligence agency just as the Christian concept of God creating man in his own image is flawed and thus provides evidence against the theology of Christianity. Ah. Because original sin basically says that we are an unintelligent design which contradicts the intelligent design theory crafted by the Christian church. I'm in more pain right now. But I have to recognize that That when it comes to what I was taught, I don't worship what I was taught. And I figured out that maybe when we make (sighs) 
figurative language, literal language, that is what causes us to reject all the wisdom that's being presented within fables and parables and stories. Um, again, I, I, I want to make it clear that um, what I do take joy in is not allowing um, the doubts to um, to make me a, a bitter person. Um, because this is really, really, um, uh, it, it's challenging. And, um, I had to say to myself that I can't run from challenges. I feel like that these challenges helped me to rethink what I was taught and maybe not conflate figurative wisdom with literal wisdom. So when we speak these things, it's not about destroying anybody's humanity. It's about destroying fear. And um, let's go to this one. Um, the f- flip side of Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager is based on the following assumptions. If you believe in God and God does exist, you will be rewarded with eternal life in heaven, thus an infinite gain. If you do not believe in God and God does exist, you will be condemned to remain in hell forever, thus an infinite loss. If you believe in God and God does not exist, you will not be rewarded, thus a finite loss. If you do not believe in God and God does not exist, you will not be rewarded, but you have lived your own life, thus a finite gain. Putting this together suggests that if you believe in God, you will have either a finite gain or a finite loss. But if you don't believe in God, you will have either an infinite loss or a finite gain. Therefore, it makes sense to believe in God in the sense of making a better wager. Where this begins to break down is that you have to make sure you're worshiping the correct God as worshiping the wrong God or the wrong interpretation of the right God might develop a fate worse than not believing in any God. Second, you have to assume that God is not smart enough to realize that you are worshiping him not from your heart, but rather based on a cold and self-centered calculation, which once again might be worse than not believing him at all. Third, it discounts the possibility, perhaps probability, that the real God of the universe has yet to contact humans, but is merely watching us, decided to grant eternal life only to those persons who have correctly determined that all the world's religions are false. I mean, I, I've wrestled with this, like, who's the real God? 
Who's the true God? Who's the factual God? Who's the correct God? Who's the accurate God? I, I, I've had those questions even when I was a Christian within organized crime. Mm. Mormonism. I'm doing more than three. I'm feeling it. In the early 19th century, Joseph Smith claimed to have been visited by God the Father and the Son and was told by them that all the existing Christian churches were false and that he would be tasked to restore the true gospel. Smith wrote a book, The Book of Mormon, that claimed that a tribe of Israelites traveled to the Americas by boat several centuries before Jesus was born. The book discussed wars between two factions of these settlers, the good and light-skinned Nephites and the bad and dark-skinned Lamanites. There is a history of racism in the in the Mormon church. I'm just saying that. It's the truth. The fact that they didn't allow full inclusion in the life of the Mormon church when it comes to black people for more than one century, decades even, tells you that Mormonism... had the same spirit as the White Citizens Council in the state of Alabama during the Civil Rights era. Ultimately, the Lamanites massacred the Nephites and became the ancestors of American Native Indians. Subsequent research has convincingly shown that the history of the Book of Mormon is fictional. The American natives originated in Eastern Asia and no archaeological evidence has been found to validate the battles that were discussed in the book. Additionally, the book contains a large number of anachronisms regarding animals and industries that did not locally exist at the time. Smith also surreptitiously practiced polygamy and polyamory, marrying teenagers as young as 14 when he was around 37. So Mormonism has its own rape culture as well as the wives of living husbands who he had conveniently sent away on proselytizing missions. So what does this have to do with Christianity? Mormonism has grown to be a successful church with about 10 million active members, despite the obvious problems surrounding its origins, the lack of authenticity of its scriptures, the implausibility of a God that would abandon all the other Christian churches and the foolishness of choosing a con man and rape culturist Smith as the agent for restoring his church to the earth. That a false religion could succeed in 19th century America means that a false faith could much more easily have flourish in the first century and beyond, the experience of Mormonism suggests that any argument claiming evidence for Christianity based on the number of adherents is null and void. I mean, <sighs> so Joseph Smith was absolutely a misogynist, male pig, And he was a liar and he was a hypocrite.
I don't understand how anybody in their right mind could be a Mormon knowing that your faith is based upon a choke artist like Joseph Smith, a bullshit artist like Joseph Smith, and a scam artist like Joseph Smith. And then I have to I have to say this. Christian hate groups. Christianity has spawned a multitude of hate groups that variously spew vitriol at gays, trans people, women, blacks, immigrants, and Jews. The flagship of this wickedness is the Westboro Baptist Church, formerly led by Fred Phelps in Topeka, Kansas. This group famously proclaims that God hates homosexuals and transgenders and that he delivers punishment in the form of battlefield deaths, natural disasters, and mass shootings. The members routinely pick the funerals of the victims of these tragedies. Even the funerals of deceased soldiers. Other examples of the, are the ministry of James Wickstrom, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism, the Christian Identity Church, anti-Black, Jim Crowism, King, Kingdom Identity Ministries, white supremacy, 19th century slaveholding religion mentalities, America's Promise Ministry, white supremacy, The segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, George Wallace mindset. Uh, Radical traditional Catholicism, anti-Jewish, Hitler syndrome, American Family Association, anti-homosexual, homophobia, Ku Klux Klan anti-black. Their disdain for the continent of Africa and promise keepers, although not a hate group, is systematically degrades executive executor status of women that have sexual marriage. To me, that's a hate group. Any group that is not for the human rights for all. <laughs> So I'm actually a hate group. So I, I consider promise creepers to be a hate group. It is well understood that most Christians do not subscribe to these forms of hatred and, and intolerance. But it's also true that Christianity is largely responsible for their existence. Biblical Bible scriptures are used to support anti-gay, many scriptures in the Old and New Testament, anti-black scriptures supporting slavery, anti-woman, New Testament scriptures supporting the supremacy of men, and anti-Jewish, many New Testament scriptures, activism. It is highly unlikely that a religion guided by a supreme being would promulgate literature that would cause this kind of hatred to exist. Rather, this has the markings of a human-produced enterprise that fully incorporates the biases and prejudices of unenlightened nitwits. Majority of them being men. (sighs) 
Okay, what? I mean, this, this. How do I feel about all this? I feel like my heart's been split in a half. And I feel like my soul has been diced up into smithereens. Then it says, what happened to people who lived and died before Jesus arrived? Christianity has a major boundary condition problem when it comes to people who lived before Jesus arrived on earth and by extension, those who lived afterwards but never heard of Jesus. There seems to be no fair way to deal with these people, as in the case today with infants or fetuses that die. In fact, the theory of Christian judgment only works when dealing with people who have reached the age of reason and, in capital letters, have heard and understood the message of Christianity. So what happened to a Native American who lived 10,000 years ago and worshipped a sky god? There are three possibilities. One, he died permanently. Two, he was sent to hell because he wasn't sinless. Or three, he was given a chance to accept God slash Jesus in the afterlife. All three of these options are seriously flawed. To deprive him, her, and they of eternal life just because he or her, or they, was born too early is unjust. And I would say her or they was sent to hell because her or they wasn't sinless. Her or they was given a chance to accept God, such Jesus in the afterlife, and her or they died permanently. And to sin him or her or they to hell is heinous. To give him or her or they a chance to accept Jesus as a matter of fact, not faith, is unfair to people today who must accept by faith only. This is a fair test of any hypothesis. If it doesn't work at the boundaries, it is probably a failed theory. Christian doctrine is measured by scientific principles of failure. Yeah, I've always had these questions. Like, Christianity wasn't always around. So what about people who were around before Moses? Did Adam and Eve go to hell? There was no Christianity when they were around. Did Cain and Abel go to hell? Did Noah go to hell? Did Abraham go to hell? Did Sarah go to hell? Did Joshua go to hell? Did David go to hell? Did Solomon go to hell? Um, did Gideon go to hell? Did Deborah go to hell? Did Esther go to hell? Um, did Lot go to hell? Did Jethro go to hell? Did Zechariah go to hell? Did Elijah go to hell? Did Elisha go to hell? These are my questions. I'm going to read two more. This is the first of the two. The unforgivable sin. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 31 to 32, Jesus is alleged to have stated, Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Notice he didn't put women or um, non-binary. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. Again, he didn't put women or non-binary to this. And who else, and whosoever speaks the word against the Son of Man, what about the Son of Women? The son, uh, and, it, you know, what about the daughters? 
and the non-binary kids. And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speak against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. The heteronormative language is troublesome to me. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 28 through 29, I promise you that any of the sinful things you say or do can be forgiven, no matter how terrible those things are. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you can never be forgiven. That sin will be held against you forever. So if you murder hundreds of people, you can be forgiven. If you rape little children, you can be forgiven. If you rob people of their possessions, you can be forgiven. But if you say bad things against the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, you are eternally condemned to hell. How can this make any sense to any logically thinking sane person? How could such an absurd rule come from an infinitely intelligent supernatural God? It couldn't. Yeah, the unforgivable sin contains vagueness and ambiguity, and it causes a um, a burdensome based morality, which is 100% immorality. Uh, because it excuses what should never be excusable and it validates what should always remain invalidated. And the last one I'm going to be doing for today um, Is this one? This one is going to be talking about the origins of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's good for me to um, really deal with this one. Because I'm, I'm, I've been studying more of how things have come together. Um, I'm not into um, just accepting things out of guilt. That's not what I'm about. And that concept actually bothers me. I just have felt the need to talk about this now. It says, ooh, I'm gonna make this a two-part and I'll be done this time. It says, forgery to legitimize the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, in the King James Version of the Bible, 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 through 8 reads as follows. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit that bears witness because the spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. This is the most unambiguous description of the Trinity doctrine of the Bible, which is the idea that God consists of three beings, the Father, the Son, 
word is a metaphor in the Holy Ghost or more common the Holy Spirit. However, the general consensus of biblical scholars is that this passage is a Latin corruption that entered the Greek manuscript tradition and subsequent copies. In other words, it is a forgery inserted with the obvious intent to provide support for the Trinity doctrine, which which otherwise is not scriptural. Because of its specious origin, the underlying phrase above has been removed from most modern versions of the Bible. However, it remains a revealing reminder that biblical scripture underwent many revisions, edits, and forgeries from the original manuscripts to the oldest ones available for contemporary research. Many of these alterations, unlike this one, were undoubtedly undetectable and continue to enjoy an undeserved authenticity. <sighs> Honestly... I am just, I felt like I just got knocked out repeatedly. That's why I didn't have any words at first. That's why I was breathing so loudly. I just felt like I got TKO'd countless times just now. Whew. And it says, inconsistency in identifying which books to place in the Bible. It's a historical fact that different faith groups have determined a different selection of books that are considered scriptural, that is, thus considered to be divinely inspired versus those that are only of human creation. This problem is created because the Bible does not enumerate its own component parts. As seen in the table below, the number of books also differs, resulting in the absence of an absolute definition of what the Bible contains. This inconsistency is a hallmark of a human endeavor, not one being controlled by a perfect deity. Religion, Judaism, accepted canon, Hebrew canon, 24 books, Samaritanism um, is the religion. Accepted canon, Samaritan canon, five books. Religion, Roman Catholicism, accepted canon, Catholic canon, 73 books. Um, Religion, Protestantism, accepted canon, Protestant canon, 66 books. Religion, Eastern Orthodox Churches is a religion. Accepted canon, Eastern Orthodox canon, 78 books. Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Orthodox Tewahedo canon, 81 books variable. That's the accepted canon. <sighs> How can you truly have life application study? When it comes to the Bible. But there's poor assemblage of the Bible. And why is it okay to be anti-Semitic towards Jesus? And why is it okay to be racist against the dark-complected Jesus?